Hope you have a Bible with you today. Let's go ahead and open it over to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1. In preparing this week for this message, I was amazed how many different issues we are covering today from a perspective, I don't think we've ever covered it in this detail before, or this much detail, but yet it is an incredibly important passage, and not only passage, topic to cover, and it is this, and it's a question, what does God do with rebellious children? Now that right there freaks some people out, and we're going to cover why it freaks them out in a few minutes, because in some people's minds, the idea of God having rebellious children is not in their theological bag. They don't think there can be such a thing as that. Can children of God be rebellious? If they are rebellious, does it prove they were never really children of God to begin with? If they persist in rebellion, do they lose their salvation? Now, there's a lot of confusion on this issue that we are looking at today, but we are looking at it today in hope that we will clarify this. Now, that issue of if they are rebellious, does it prove they were never really children of God to begin with? That is, of course, one of the tenets of Calvinism. They love that one. They love to stand there and go there. Lordship salvation also holds to that one. Well, let me say this as we begin today and kind of a foundational set the groundwork point. And it is this. You cannot be a rebellious child of God until you are first a child of God. You cannot be a rebellious child of God until you are first a child of God. Now, I know in some people's minds, this idea is almost like an oxymoron, but it's not. And it's going to be clear as we go through the text. So let's look at several issues having to do with this. The first one is this. How do you become a child of God? Okay. Before we get to talking about rebellious children of God, let's talk about how to become a child of God. How do you become a child of God? Well, simply put by trusting in Jesus Christ as your savior, by trusting in Jesus Christ as your savior. We're in John chapter one. Look at verse 12, what it says. It says, but as many as received him, referring to Jesus Christ, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, the children of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now it's not saying, oh, even them. No, the idea is you notice the word even in your, in your Bible, your King James Bible, it's italicized. It literally would read, if you just take it in the Greek, it would be, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, to them that believe on his name. Specifically, it's saying, those who believe on his name. Those are the ones who become the children of God. Verse 13, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now think about it for a moment. On a human level, when you were born, you became a child of your birth parents. True? Yes, absolutely true. There's nothing that can undo that relationship. Nothing can undo that. And no document nor statement can ever change the reality of the physical relationship you have with your birth 
parent, okay? Maybe you're here today, you were adopted. You still have an actual mother and father. That's how you came into existence. They are your birth parents, whether they gave you up for adoption or whether they died, or even this in some very strict religious families of one kind or another. Sometimes, let's say a, a person is a their child and they do something evil and they do something bad or they, they change their beliefs and the parents say, we disown you. We disown you. You are no longer our child. Are they really, truly no longer their child? No. Their daily relationship, their fellowship has been affected, but the relationship is a permanent one. It's a permanent one. There's nothing that can undo that relationship. Now, what is true in the physical world is also true in the spiritual realm. Listen carefully today. The idea of becoming unborn spiritually is nowhere, I repeat, nowhere in Scripture. And if that is true, then you cannot lose your salvation no matter what you do. Once you have it, you are saved forever, forever. You can't lose it. People say, do you believe in once saved, always saved? Yes. Why? Well, one reason is because when you're born again, you're born again. Salvation is a one-time occurrence that goes on forever. This is because when you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, God gives you everlasting life. All sin is forgiven forever. That not only includes what you've done in the past, it also includes what you do till the day you die. Now, I, I know some people who may hear this, maybe even you here today, if you're visiting, you may say, that freaks me out. No way. Boy, there's no telling what's going to happen to a person, how they're going to live. I mean, they're going to automatically, I've had people tell me this. Oh, you believe you just trust Christ the Savior and then go out and rape, murder, and steal. I've even had people tell me this. If I believed what you believe... I would go out and live a, an awful life. I would go kill and I would go do this and I'm going to do that. And I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> I don't know if I want to be around you. If that's what you would do if you become a believer. Now, you know, friends, that borders on the idiotic. Honestly, it does. It really does. Jesus said, see, you're justified, the Bible says, from all things. When you put your trust in Jesus Christ, the Savior, he forgives you of all your sin. He gives you eternal life. You become a child of God. We've got a booklet you can get in our resource center, okay? The permanence of salvation, why once saved, always saved is true. We give 12 reasons, which we've covered in church. We're not going to do that again today. But the point, though, is this. Jesus said you must be born again. If you want to be saved, if you want to be a child of God, you must be born again. He never said you must be born again and again and again and again. Once you're a child of God, you're always a child of God. Now the question comes up, how are you born again? Well, that's what it means to become a child of God. You're born again by putting your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ. What about that, okay? What are you trusting him for? What are you believing in him about, all right? Look in a John chapter, you're in chapter one. Look with me to chapter three. John chapter three, it, it, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. By the way, this is the passage where he says, you must be born again. If you want to see the kingdom, if you want to enter the kingdom, you have to be born again. Now that's interesting, by the way. The word again 
is the word in the Greek, it's anathan, and it means from above. So it's not only referring to a second birth, it's also referring to a spiritual birth. In other words, the second birth you need to go to heaven is also a birth that only God gives. It's not one you manufacture by the way you live. And Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There you go. God promises if you will trust in Jesus Christ, you will not perish. That means spend eternity separated from him in hell, but you will have everlasting life. When? When you believe, when you put your faith in him. Now, what is this all about? Let me explain this, folks. This represents you and me, this hand. My wallet represents all the things we do wrong, a whole lifetime of sin. All of us are sinners, every one of us. The Bible says, though God loves us, he hates our sin, but he loves us. For us to go to heaven now, heaven's a perfect place. You have to be sinless in the eyes of God. You have to be perfect. Your sin has to be gone for you to go to heaven. Now, what takes it away? Well, the Bible nowhere says good works. We'll get to that in a minute. The Bible says the only payment for sin, because sin has to be paid for, the only payment for sin is we would have to die physically and then be separated from God forever in hell. If we do it, that's what you have to do. Well, I think I'm going to get there. I'm, I'm trying to be a good person. I'm trying to be moral and all that. Good works will not do it. There's not a verse in the Bible that says good works will take away your sin. Not one. Going to church, being water baptized, giving money, being a good moral person, trying to keep the Ten Commandments, all these other things. People think that's what's going to get us to heaven. No, good works won't pay for sin. Because there's nothing we could do to save ourselves, that is why Jesus came. This hand representing him, you notice he is sinless. Therefore, he's the only one qualified to be a substitute for us. God, sinless one, came and took on flesh so he could be a substitute, the perfect son of God. And when Jesus went to the cross, that sin of ours, that sin of yours, he came and he took it. He paid the price so you don't have to. He was buried. He rose from the grave. And he says, if you believe, that's what John 3.16 is about. Now, obviously, this was said before he went to the cross, but he's talking about what he's going to do. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. As what? As a sacrifice. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven, they're taken away. The payment he made is good on your behalf and God gives you in place everlasting life. He forgives you of all your sin. He gives you his righteousness. You go to heaven on what Christ has done for you. See, it says in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we've got them up here. It's on the screen. Also, it's in your Bible, of course. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not of your works. You're saved by God's grace. That's God's unmerited favor. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. But God did it for us because he loves us, for God so loved the world. And when you trust in Christ, he saved you by his grace. 
You notice it's not of ourselves. We're not saved of ourselves. It is the gift of God. Salvation is the gift of God. Verse 9, not of works, lest any man should boast. So how? How do you become a child of God? You become a child of God when you trust in Jesus Christ that when he died, he paid for all your sins. You put in your faith in him as your way to heaven. And when you do, he gives you eternal life. You become a child of God, which leads us to our next point. And it is this. Are all children of God obedient children? Well, that's an interesting question. Are all children of God obedient children? Well, if you're honest, you would have to say, no, they're not. See, we all still sin once we are saved. And yes, let me say this. We all still even sin at times habitually. Habitually. You'll hear people say today in study Bibles and commentaries say, well, if you're saved, you may sin, but you won't sin habitually. That is a bunch of baloney. People who come up with that stuff are prideful and self-righteous. That is not what the Bible says. As a matter of fact, I'll show you just the opposite in just a moment. The truth of it is this. All of us are disobedient at times. Turn with me to Romans chapter 7. So you become a child of God through faith in Christ. Are all children of God obedient children? Can I tell you this? The vast majority of people who say they're saved, who say they're Christians, believe that if you're saved, you're going to be an obedient child of God, if you're saved. I got a question for you. How obedient are you going to be? Don't dismiss that. Don't blow it off. How obedient are you going to be? Should we be obedient? Yes, we'll get to that. But are all children of God obedient children? The answer to that is no. We all still sin once we're saved. All of us are disobedient at times. Now, in Romans chapter 7, when Paul wrote Romans chapter 7, he's writing to Christians. He had been saved some 25 years when he wrote Romans chapter 7. By the way, let me head this off right at the beginning. Romans 7 is not talking about his past when he was lost. You hear that today, they'll say, well, what he's talking about in Romans 7 about sinning, that's before he was saved. No, it's not. It's written in the present tense. It's written in the present tense. It means it's going on. It happens in real time. Romans 7, verse 18, he says, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, his old nature, his old sin nature. See, when you get saved, the bondage of the sin nature is broken, but it's not eliminated. The sin nature is still there. We are born into the world with a sin nature. That's why Jesus said you have to be born again. When you trust Christ the Savior, he gives you a new nature. The bondage is broken, but it's still there. You can choose which one you live according to. Most people, even Baptists, don't don't understand this. They don't get it. Here's the way they think. Well, once you get saved, here it is. By the way, this is exactly what John MacArthur teaches. He says there is no such thing as two natures in a believer. That's what he says. I've got the quotes if you want to see them. So then where does sin come from, sir? In the lives of Christians, where does sin come? He says this. It's a remnant of before he was saved. It's like a, it's like a fragment left over. You know what? That's nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible is that found. 
No, friend, listen, we're born with a sin nature. When we get saved, we have a new nature. And yes, the bondage was broken. You don't have to live under its bondage anymore. But these two natures are battling in the believer. That's why Christians still sin. What is God's will? That we would live according to the new nature, not the old. But see, this is a matter of choice. Look at this, verse 18. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. The old nature, there's nothing good in it. For to will is present with me. In other words, to do what's right is present with me. The desires is there. There's, there's will. That's what I want to do. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. In himself, he didn't find how to do it. Verse 19, for the good that I would, I don't do it. But the evil which I would not, that I do. You notice again, he says, the good that it used to be that the good that I would, I didn't do it. And the evil I didn't want to do, I did that. No, that would be past tense, right? His present. The evil which I would not, that I do. Now, here's an interesting thing, and I don't like to bore you with Greek stuff, but there's times when this is important to bring up. The word do here is a different word than what you usually find in the Bible for do. The Bible oftentimes uses the Greek word poeo, and it means to commit a single act. That's what it means. People will look at that word at times, and they'll say, oh, that means to practice sin. No, no, no. No, it doesn't. God has a, there's a Greek, not, God didn't invent Greek, okay, but the Greeks did. That's why they speak it. Anyway, and I know it's Greek to you. I get it. Okay, ha ha. Let's move on. They had a word for practice, and it was the Greek word proso. Sounds like practice, right? Proso, practice. And guess what? What you find in verse 19, that I do is that I practice. This is the word proso. Paul is saying there are times when I practice what I don't want to do. I practice that which is wrong, which is sin. Now, friends, he's talking present tense. Now, later on in the chapter, he says, how do I get victory in this? And he says, oh, it's Jesus Christ. And praise God, that's true, right? We get the victory over our sin as believers by the power of Jesus Christ, by trusting in him. And that is where victory is. And that's what God wants us to have. But listen, be honest, at least be honest. You still practice sin. And so do I. And God doesn't want that. But that's a reality. Let me show you another one here. Turn with me over to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John is written, listen, approximately 60 years after John was saved. 60 years. John chapter 1 and verse 8. John writing to believers, by the way. The issue of 1 John is not salvation or whether you're saved. Okay, It's whether you're walking in fellowship with God or not whether you're walking with him as a believer, not whether you're saved or not, like most people falsely teach. 1 John 1 verse 8, John says this about himself as well as other believers. If we say, notice he includes himself. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is sin in the Christian life he's talking about. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar 
and his word is not in us. You see, folks, just like in the physical realm, children either choose to obey or disobey. Some children, yes, are more obedient than other children. Some children are compliant on the outside, but they're rebels on the inside. And they hate obeying, but they know the alternative is getting spanked. And so they obey, but really, you know, they're sitting down on the outside, but they're standing up on the inside. They're rebels, but they're passive. It's passive rebellion. But you see, it's a matter of choice. In the physical realm, children either choose to obey or disobey. It's a matter of the will. It's a matter of the will. If it is not a matter of the will, but instead automatic, then let me ask you a question. Because people will say that. Well, if you're saved, you're going to live a godly Christian life. And if you don't live a godly Christian life, you're not saved. You know, they'll say, well, you can sin a little, but you can't practice sin. That's what they say. Rebellious children can't practice sin. They can only sin a little bit. Well, if they sin a lot, they're really not children. Can I tell you this, folks? I deal with people on a regular basis through email and phone calls who have been tormented for years about this issue we are dealing with. Tormented. Some of them psychotic, literally, because they have been fed lies by people in the pulpit, people in commentaries, people on the internet. Even their study Bible is feeding on the lies. Here's the truth of it. If you as a Christian can only sin a little, where's the line? What defines a little? And in what areas? Which, which sins are the big ones? You know, they want to talk about the big ones. Which sins are the big ones? They never talk about things like pride, jealousy, self-righteousness, greed, lust, inside, not outside. It's always things that are outside. Let me ask you a question. You sin a little. Well, Christians, if you're saved, you can sin a little, but not a lot. Let me ask you this. If God is your father and you were to live his will, would you sin at all? You wouldn't sin at all if God was your father. And he had his way. And he had his way. But see, we still have a will once we're saved. And we still sin because we choose to sin. We shouldn't, but we do. It's a matter of the will. God's will for us is that we don't sin at all. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. But we do. By the way, that's John again talking about it. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. I don't mean to belabor this point, folks, but listen, this is so important to understand. So important. I said, well, I don't think that person's saved. Well, maybe they're not. But don't judge whether they're saved or not by are they living as righteously as you do. Because you know what I'd love to do? People who say that, I'd love, to, I'd love to get somebody on their tail for a couple of weeks and just watch them and follow them everywhere they go and what they do. Now, that would be impossible. By the way, there is somebody who does that. He's called the Holy Spirit. And he's inside of them if they're saved. And can I tell you this? A lot of the ones who scream and holler about this issue the most are not even saved to begin with because they're trusting in their own righteousness to get themselves to heaven. Their faith is in their performance, not in the finished work of Christ. 
Romans 6, verse 16. Paul, again, here he is, saved 25 years. He says this, Know ye not, he's writing to believers, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Now, we don't have time to cover Romans chapter 6, the whole chapter, but the whole thing is, listen, now that you're saved, don't live in sin any longer. Why would he have to tell them that if it was automatic that they wouldn't do it now that they're saved? He had to tell them, he had to admonish them because he knew it was a possibility, but he knew it would be a disaster for their lives. You notice the choice, right? That's a choice, is it not? He's writing to Christians and he says, you have a choice. Don't, though, yield yourselves to sin unto death, but of obedience unto righteousness. See, God wants us and expects us to obey him, but many times we do not. He's called us unto obedience, but this is a matter of the will, and it's also a matter of spiritual growth. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, gives us the will of God. It says, as obedient children, as obedient children, that's the will of God. Amen. We stand for that in this church. If you're saved, you ought to go on and live your life for Jesus Christ. But you will fail at times. Just don't be a rebellious Christian who lives, chooses a path of rebellion is what I'm talking about. It's going to wreck your life. It's going to destroy your life. Which leads us to our third point. Okay, pastor, then what if a Christian who is saved by grace, who is eternally secure, who's on their way to heaven, who even knows the word of God, what does God do with rebellious children? Well, here you go. The Bible says he chastens them. He chastens them. Now, what is chastening? One source says it is a verb meaning to discipline, to chasten, to instruct, to teach, to punish. All right? Strong's lexicon says this, to chastise, literal with blows, or figuratively, with words, hence to instruct. The word chasten is, is linked to the word training and discipline in Scripture and instruction in Scripture. God is instructing us when he chastens, when he disciplines us. Now, by the way, this is something we see in both the Old and New Testament. It is not just seen under the law. It is also seen under grace where we live today. I just throw that in free today because there are some believers today who don't think God chastens. And yet he does. Chastening is part of the training of God's children to be mature saints. Can I say it again? Chastening, God chastening us is part of the training of God's children to be mature saints. Now, go with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Probably the key passage in all of the Bible dealing with this issue of God chastening his children, disciplining his children. Okay? God blessed my wife and I with three beautiful daughters who came into the world. We think there was at least one miscarriage along the way, but three beautiful daughters. Uh, Laura, who sang today, she's our, our youngest, and our other two girls, they're all saved. They're all serving Christ. We couldn't ask for anything more. They're such a blessing to our lives. But can I tell you this? They weren't perfect. Can I tell you this? They had times of rebellion, all three of them. And sometimes that rebellion was really, really deep-rooted. 
Now, God has ways of dealing with that. Or we, God tells us there's ways to deal with that, and that's through discipline, that's through chastening, okay, and, and training them up. Why? Because we wanted them to, to get to where they were submissive to the plan of God for their lives, and that's the way they're living now, and we thank God for that. Now, that's something they choose to do even to this day, but we're glad that that's the choice they've made. But see, here's the truth of it. There were times when they were rebellious, We didn't walk up to them or pick them up and say, are you even my child? You should doubt whether you're my child or not. Now, if you look at Laura and Michelle, there's no question. They're Sue's daughters. Well, that doesn't sound right. They're our daughters. They look like Sue, though. Whew, got past that one. If you look at our middle daughter, Kim, some of you have never met her, maybe one of these days. If you look at our middle daughter, Kim, there's no doubt she's on my side. She looks like me. All three are our daughters. The way they behaved had nothing to do with whether they're our daughters or not. Now, yes, we wanted them to behave and to do what's right. But when they chose to rebel, we had to deal with them. That is exactly what chastening is. When we as believers choose to rebel, God has to deal with us. And he can do it pretty much any way he wants. Hebrews 12, 6, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges, whips every son, every child of God whom he receives. And why does he chasten and discipline every child of God? Because every child of God still is a sinner because he sins. When God chastens his children, he does it out of love. Do you notice that first part of verse six? If you are being chastened, God is dealing with you as a child. Verse seven, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? So whom does God chasten? Well, he chastens every child of God. Why? Because every child of God has rebellion at one time or another, or a period of rebellion. If we endure or are enduring chastening, it shows that we're his children because he only chastens his children. Get that? He only chastens his children. Think about spanking your children. We would, we would never spank the child down the block. Why? Not ours. Listen, you're asking for enough trouble today if you spank your own, let alone somebody else's kids. Now, back when I was little, there was an understanding, a cooperative movement among parents. Okay? If you rebelled at Billy's house, Billy's mom could do what she wanted or dad And then when you got home, they already called and let your parents know, and then you're in double trouble, right? All right. Now, well, it's a disaster now. Hebrews 12, 8, for if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers. Why? Because all are still sinners, because we still rebel. If you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye or King James's bastards. The idea is, um, I said, oh, shouldn't have said that. That's a, it's a word that did not have a vulgar aspect to it. It was the way it is, okay? Illegitimate and not sons. So if you don't get chastened, you're not a child of God. What does that tell us? It tells us that every child of God is still a sinner. 
and does wrong. So then the question comes up, how does God chasten? How does God chasten? Well, the general answer is this, any way he wants to. Why? Because he is our spiritual father and knows what's best. Yes, father knows best. Some of you remember that. Any way he wants to. Let me say before I give you some ways, I am not saying that every time one of these things that I'm going to tell you about shows up in your life or someone else's life that it is God who is chasing in a negative sense. I'm not saying that. Okay? I am just saying these are ways, common ways that God can deal, and there's many others as well. But let me give you some examples. Physical sickness. Does that mean every time you get sick, God is chasing you? No, it doesn't mean that, but he could be. That's between you and God. That's not for anybody else to figure out. Okay? Loss of a job. Loss of a job. It kind of wakes us up, doesn't it, when that happens? Is that a guarantee that it's God chastening? Not necessarily. By the way, he will use it to teach. But maybe he's not disciplining. Maybe he's not spanking in a sense. Maybe it's not because of sin in your life. Maybe it's just that there's a lesson that has to be learned. Financial struggles. This can, by the way, even come up into the life of those who don't give as they should. And God says, okay, if you're going to be greedy and you're not going to give to me and honor me with your substance, then I'm going to discipline you and kind of teach you with this. You know, friends, I found this. If you give financially, God has a way of stretching your money and blessing your life. And if you withhold and you get stingy with your money and you don't give as God would have you to give, God has a way of saying, okay, if you want to be on your own, I'll withhold some blessings from you and see how you like it. What's he doing? He's trying to teach us. Let me give you another one. Accidents. Accidents of all kinds. Here's another one. Car problems. Here's another one. And this freaks some people out, but I want you to think about it. The death of a child. Let me tell you something this morning. If you're a Christian parent, you're saved by grace, you know it, and you're living in rebellion, to wake you up, God could take one of your children. Say, oh, that sounds so. No way, no way. God's not that way. Well, friend, this may sound very cruel, but we see it in the life of David with his illegitimate son with Bathsheba, right? God took that child. God took that child. It was rough on David, but God was teaching him. Let me give you another one, persecution. Persecution. I thought that only comes when I'm living for Christ. No, when we rebel towards God, persecution can come upon us, these kind of issues. The Lord did this many times in the lives of the children of Israel. As a matter of fact, he told them that he would send them enemies because of their rebellion. Enemies. Could he do that in your life and mine? He could if he wanted to. Let me give you another one. Physical death. How about that one? Physical death. How does God deal with rebellious children who will not wake up and get going in the right direction? One way he could is through physical death. We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Turn there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In verse 29, it says, For he that eateth, the Corinthians were coming to the Lord's Supper, and they were coming drunk. And Paul is rebuking them for them. 
They were disrespectful when they came and observed the Lord's Supper, communion. He says, for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation or judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, these are saved people he's writing to. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. That is a term for Christians who have, taped and who have gone on to be with the Lord. God brought sickness into their lives because of their rebellion, and God brought physical death into the life of some of them because of their rebellion. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. God is for self-correction, by the way. It's what confession is all about. Go back to Hebrews chapter 12 in verse 9. It says, furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, our natural dads, which corrected us and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? Now those are sobering words. Either submit to the chastening of the Father or die. See, Proverbs 15.10 says this, Correction is grievous unto him that forsaketh the way, and he that hateth reproof shall die. Is it a guarantee? No, it's not a guarantee, but it is a biblical truth that we need to take heed of If we are children of God living in rebellion to our heavenly fathers and we will not give in, sooner or later, he's going to be dealing with you. He's going to be dealing with me. It's what the Bible says, friend. If you're saved, he's going to chasten. Now, why does God chasten? Well, two reasons are given. Number one, in um, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 10, number one, that we might be partakers of his holiness. For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But I'm sorry, verse 11. But he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Yeah, there it is. Some earthly fathers discipline their children for reasons that seem good to them or even to satisfy their thinking. They're human. They're doing their best. They could make mistakes, but the Lord never makes a mistake. And every time he steps in and chastens us, it's for our profit. He wants us to get straightened out, to walk according to his word, to where his blessings can flow. Second reason is this, that we would yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Boy, isn't that a nice, positive, joyful, wonderful truth? Look at verse 11. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Absolutely. Remember when you were, as a kid, if you got spanked as a kid? My dad was a patriot. He laid down the stripes and I saw stars, okay? (laughs) Now, I didn't get spanked very much because I learned from my brothers, okay? They got spanked all the time, all the time. No, that's not necessarily true. (laughs) I don't, honestly, this is what my dad said later in life. I don't remember, but I must have learned because I didn't get spanked a lot. And I was the baby. Maybe that was part of it. I don't know. Youngest is what I mean, okay? But you notice it? Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. By chastening, the Lord separates the sin that he hates from the child whom he loves. What a beautiful thing this is. The Lord says, you know what? You've chosen a path of rebellion. I love you too much not to step in. And he steps in and he applies just the right amount of pressure. And sometimes he has to do it over and over and over. 
Now listen, I believe this. I believe there are times when God says, okay, I'm going to chasten you by letting you have your own way, and you become a victim of the law of sowing and reaping. And the miserable life you are going to have, and the heartache and sorrow you're going to bring upon yourself. Sometimes that's what God does. I can't speak what God's going to do in my life or your life even. But I do know this. How does God deal with his rebellious children? There are rebellious children. God does deal with rebellious children and he does it through chastening. And what is his goal in doing it? Verse 11, nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. The Lord chastens us so we will come back into submission to him so that he can lead us, mold us, and pour out his blessings on us. Friend, God cannot bless rebellion. God cannot bless rebellion. I don't know about you. I want God's blessings in my life. How? It's simple. By yielding to him and obeying his word. When I sin, by confessing my sin right away. Confess it right now. Get that taken care of right now. He forgives. He cleanses from all unrighteousness. I'm brought back into fellowship with him. And I can walk in the light as he is in the light. And we can have fellowship one with another. What a glorious place to be. And the blessings flow. You're close to God and you know it and you know his blessings and you see him using you and working in your life. That's the way he wants it to be for all of his children. One more verse, John chapter six. Doesn't this all make sense by the way? See, you don't get people to live right by making them question whether they're saved or not. That's not how you get them to live right, Christians. You get them to live right by teaching them the word of God, letting them understand the battle between the two natures, letting them understand the victory that they have in Christ, letting them understand what God would have them to do in the way they live their life, how great God is. And in all of the truth of scripture, that's how you do it. You don't lie to them with threats. If you're doing that, too much. Well, what's too much? Well, you know. No, you don't know. You don't know how much better to appeal to them with saying, you know what? You're breaking your heavenly father's heart by the way you're living your life. He's going to step in and deal with you, but he'll never forsake you. He'll never leave you because salvation's a gift through faith in Christ. John 6, 47, Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath right now possesses everlasting life. Now, if I have everlasting life, friend, that means that I have life that will never stop. I have eternal life that will never stop. That means I can't be saved even if I rebel. But can I tell you this? If I choose a path of rebellion, that is foolishness. I'm only hurting myself, not wise. Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.